Morning, Providence. Let's pray. Father, we trust that our singing songs of praise and our reading your word, our praying to you, we trust that all these things have been received by you as worship this morning. Even as we have focused on you in these recent moments, Father, we we affirm how good it is for us to worship you how good it is for our hearts and minds to be reminded of these true things and to sing them with conviction, to receive them with grateful hearts. Father, we thank you for the gift of worshiping you. There likely are among us this morning, Father, those who because of sins given into or or trials endured, have been tempted to doubt truth. The enemy has attempted to sell us lies. Lies to the effect that there's something else that we need in order to be okay in this world. We pray, Father, that what we have already done this morning would disabuse us of those lies and further and more importantly that as we open your word and study it together, you would convince us all the more of the truth. That Jesus Christ is our only hope, and blessedly so. So, Father, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word this morning? Not simply so that we can walk out with greater knowledge, but so that we can walk in light of that knowledge. We pray that your Holy Spirit would would minister to us by helping us in in each of our circumstances to know exactly what that means. Help us to rightly walk in light of these things wherever we find ourselves this morning. We pray for your help in all of this, and we do so with confidence because of the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. This morning we'll be considering the first 10 verses of chapter 5. So as you find your place there, let's stand together out of respect for the Lord's Word. And and I'll read these first 10 verses of chapter 5 for us. Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he is himself beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I've begotten you. 
as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. I have in my garage a miter saw. For those of you uninitiated in the ways of woodworking, a miter saw is designed to do something very specific, and that is to cut precise angles in wood, or to cut wood at precise angles. And this, this tool is so important in my view that I, I built a workbench around my miter saw. The whole bench is dedicated to just this instrument. And my miter saw has done a couple of things very well for me over the years. First of all, it has demonstrated the importance of having a miter saw. And secondly, it has showed me how badly I need a better miter saw. Because my miter saw doesn't make straight cuts. There there are a couple of essential components of my miter saw that are bent ever so slightly. You cannot see it with the naked eye. And, it, and it, it took me hours, frustrating hours, to figure this out about, about myself. Why am I not getting straight cuts? Well, this thing is bent. It's off kilter, so to speak. So when I, when I look at my miter saw, I think miter saws are awesome, but not that one. I need, I need a better one. The author of Hebrews is beginning to make that kind of argument about all the major components of the Old Covenant. All of them. The the Old Covenant priesthood served to picture why we need a priesthood. And by its own deficiency, it served to show us we need a better one. So we need a priesthood. That's what the old priesthood showed us. But we need one better than that one. And the same thing with the Old Testament sacrifices. They demonstrated you need a blood sacrifice But it has to be better than this. The Old Covenant itself showed you need a covenant, but you need one better than this one. Hebrews 4, 14-16, which we looked at last week, the, the Holy Spirit used that to call us to hold fast our confession and to draw near to God through Christ for help. That same exhortation is going to show up again in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, like bookends on this middle section of the book. And and in between, in that section in between, beginning here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the author begins to tell us why we need to do these things, why we need to hold fast our confession and draw near to God for help. And he begins to show us why by pointing us to the priesthood. You need a priest. But you need a better one than the one that you had. You need the better one that God has appointed for you, which is Jesus Christ. You need a priest who can reconcile you to God and thereby facilitate fellowship with God to strengthen you until you enter glory. Your spouse can't do this. 
and your, your, your career can't do this. Don't hold fast to these things. Your, your, your spouse or your career, like it's your source of hope, like it's some kind of functional priest. Your kids can't do this. Right relationships with your kids can't do this. Christian nationalism can't do this. Neither secular nor Christian psychology can do this. Improved physical health can't do this. Perfected relationships within the church can't do this. Only Jesus, only Jesus can reconcile you to God and thereby facilitate fellowship with Him to strengthen you until you enter glory. Jesus is your God-appointed, suffering, perfected high priest. For that reason, hold fast your confession in Him. To demonstrate this, the author begins by looking at the the Levitical priesthood. And and what we're going to find is in verses 1 through 4, he's going to tell us several things about that old priesthood. And he's doing that to set up some comparisons and contrasts between the priesthood and Jesus. So when we get to verses 5 through through 10, he's going to say, here's a way that Jesus is like that old priesthood. But then here's several ways that he is different and better. Now, in those verses 1 through 4, which will be about the first half of our message or so, again, he's talking just about the Levitical priesthood. I won't be able to help myself. I will talk about Jesus still in verses 1 through 4. But the bulk of the Jesus stuff comes in 5 through 10, all right? So the author begins with the office and weakness of the Levitical high priest. The office and weakness of the Levitical high priest. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he is himself beset with weakness. Every high priest, and here he's talking again about the Levitical priesthood, every high priest is taken from among men. Why would that be? Because a priest interacts with God on behalf of men. And so in order to represent men, the priest has to himself be a man. And on behalf of men, high priests offer gifts and sacrifices to God. Back in Leviticus, earlier this year and last year, we saw that there were some offerings that that represented consecration to God. Represented fellowship with God, thanksgiving to God. And all of those offerings are represented by the word gifts here in this passage. The word sacrifices represent those offerings that the high priest brought to God in order to atone for the sins of the people. So the high priest, he says, because he, because he, in his offering of these offerings, He's, he's able to deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant. Now, both of those words pertain to sins in Exodus and Leviticus that were considered unintentional sins. You may remember this concept from Leviticus. There were intentional high-handed sins, just, just open rebellion against God, and then there were unintentional sins, some things that we would think of as just honest mistakes, really. There were only sacrifices to atone for the unintentional sins. And the author of Hebrews, he's going to go into that a little bit later when we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10. Let's pay attention to this phrase, deal gently. Deal gently. 
This is one word in the original language, in it, and it, it invites a comparison. It calls for us to think back to a different word that was used in the passage that we looked at last week. Remember that Christ is able to sympathize. Do you remember we spent some time thinking about that word sympathize last week? Here, the Levitical priest is able to do something different, deal gently. These are similar but distinct Greek words. And essentially what what the author is calling our attention to is that the Levitical priests are able to tamp down their anger with the people that they're serving. The Levitical priests were able to not lose it with the people when they sinned. Jesus sympathizes, which is to enter into suffering. Jesus enters into the suffering of the people that He serves, not in such a way that He incurs guilt Himself, but His heart goes out to them in their sin in a way that the high priests don't. Jesus sympathizes. The high priest deals gently or or tamps down His anger. The priest can deal gently with them because... The priest is himself clothed in weakness is another way to render, render this phrase. Beset with weakness, I think the more colorful literal language is, is, is better. They're clothed in weakness. And that word weakness is the same word weakness that we saw in the passage last week, referring to all, all of the infirmities of life in, in this human body and living in this human world. And in particular here, it's talking about weakness Pertaining to sin, the, the priest who is himself sinful is by that weakness able to deal gently or to avoid excessive anger with the people that he's making offerings for. Christ, again, on the other hand, who never sinned, he goes further in his ministry in that he sympathizes with those in their weakness. And, and so this goes back to one thing that we considered last week. Some of us are afraid when we hear this about Jesus being the perfect help for us in our time of weakness, some of us wonder, how can that actually be? How can Jesus sympathize with us, even though He's tempted in every way, but He never sinned? And so, how can He actually help me as a sinner in a sinful world? Well, we may not understand the how. But just by the author using this word about high priest, this deal gently, he is signaling to us that though we may not understand how Jesus can sympathize, he does. He's differentiating Jesus from the high priest by saying Jesus sympathizes. And listen, there's nobody, according to this book, there's nobody that's going to sympathize with you like Jesus. Whether we understand it or not, no one can enter into and and understand and help a person enslaved to pornography or gluttony or anxiety or doubt like Jesus. He's better than someone else who has actually given into all of those things. And we know that because the author has chosen these different words to describe Jesus and the high priests. Sympathize versus deal gently. The Levitical priest was inherently weak. In offering his his gifts and sacrifices, he did so as one who himself needed those offerings. This leads to a look at the weakness and offering of the high priest. So we've looked at the office and weakness. Now we're looking at the weakness and offering. His weakness dictates something about the way that he makes offerings. So let's look at verse 3. Because of this, and we'll stop right there, this, what, what is this 
referring to? What's referring back to the priest's own weakness? He just mentioned that the priest is weak like everybody else, and so he's able to deal gently with them. Because of this, because he's weak, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So the the priest is himself a sinner, a sinner who needs atonement for his sin. You may remember from Leviticus 9 when, when Moses was obeying God's instruction for installing Aaron and his sons and leading those priests through their offering of their first sacrifices. Moses said to Aaron, Leviticus 9, 7, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. In other words, remember that there was, there was a completely separate sacrifice for the priest, and then he offered the sacrifice of the people. He had to make his own sacrifice first, and, and this had to be repeated every day of atonement, according to Leviticus 16. What would have happened if he hadn't done that? What if he, what if he had just gone and offered the sacrifice of the people? What, what would have happened? Well, just like Nadab and Abihu, he would have been annihilated before God because he was not covered by an atoning sacrifice. In a sense, just to to, to borrow a phrase from Paul, the high priests, they were the chiefs of sinners. And the, the, the offering required of the high priest for his own sin was the most costly of all sacrifices to be offered. So the, that, that sacrifice for one man was more costly than the sacrifice for all of the people, indicating the higher standard required for high priests and how significant was his sin to himself and to the people that he's leading. If, if, if we had time, we'd, we'd, we'd take a short stroll through the history of Israel and we would note some scoundrels who served as high priests. They were extremely sinful. Not, not all of them were, were awful, but, but all of them were, as the author of Hebrews says, all of them were clothed in weakness. And that, for that reason, any high priest was obligated to offer sacrifice for himself. His weakness necessitated the scope of his offerings. He's offering not just for the people, but also for himself. The author later is going to make much of the fact that Jesus had no such need. He had, he had no need to offer sacrifices for himself or to have somebody else do that. And why was that? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus is the one sinless high priest able to enter God's presence with no atonement necessary for him. So the author, he put, puts in front of us the office and the weakness of the high priests and how that weakness then affects his offering and his final point that he wants to make about the priesthood before moving on to Jesus. He, he wants to communicate something about the appointment of the, the Levitical high priests. The appointment of the Levitical high priests. Let's look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So God did not take resumes for high priest. In in fact, if you're taking notes, you might write down Numbers 16 and 17. You'll read there about Korah's rebellion. There are a group of men who decided, I think we should be high priests. I don't think Aaron is so hot. I think we're just as good as Aaron. 
And so we'll be high priests too. And they challenge Moses and Aaron. It doesn't end well for these folks. Just read, read it, number 16 and 17. And not only doesn't it end well for them, but on top of all that, by miraculous means, God affirms to everybody, I choose priests. I do. They don't choose themselves. Look, look, look again at verse 4. The word takes, takes there, the same Greek word that's translated chosen in verse 1. You see chosen in verse 1? Those are the same word. And so the idea here is with these, with these, these two verses is priests don't choose the office. They are chosen for the office. They don't choose it. They're chosen for it. And the entire purpose of bringing that up is to show the same thing about Jesus. The author, again, he's, he's going to use some of the realities of the high priesthood as points of comparison with Jesus, others as points of contrast. And this is one of those points of comparison, which leads us now to look at the appointment of Christ. The appointment of Christ is like the appointment of the Levitical high priest. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As He says also in another place, You are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So like the high priests, the Levitical high priests, Jesus didn't aspire to this. Jesus did not choose this for Himself, but, but Jesus serves as our high priest at the appointment of God the Father. And the, the, author, the author grounds that reality in a couple of Old Testament quotations. The first of those comes from Psalm 2-7. And if you've got a really good memory, you, you may remember that we looked at Psalm 2-7 back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews deduced from Psalm 2 that the Messiah is the promised Son of God, is Jesus. The Messiah is, I'm sorry, the promised Son of David, who is Jesus. And and here he uses that verse once again to show us that Jesus is appointed by God. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. So the the author is saying, this is showing that the Father has chosen the Son to serve in His special office. Now we, we might wonder, if the author of Hebrews is talking about priesthood, here in chapter 5, why is he referring to Psalm 2, which talks about a king? He's talking about a priest. Why is he referring to something that, that talks about the Messiah as a king? Well, that becomes closer when we hold these two, these two quotations side by side. Psalm 2-7, alongside the other quotation, which is from Psalm 110, indicates to us what the author is doing here. In Psalm 2-7, you've got the Messiah's promised as the son of David, who is a king. Psalm 110 also speaks of that very king. This is Psalm 110.1. It's not in, the, in this, this text, but we saw it back in chapter 1. Psalm 110.1 reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that, that's the main verse that the author used back in chapter 1 to establish the identity of Jesus as the messianic son of God, king. Now that same chapter, that same psalm in verse 4, Psalm 110.4, reads this way. The Lord has sworn and I will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the, the, the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110, just in this one, one chapter in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 shows that the Messianic son of David 
isn't just a king. He is a king, but he's not just a king. He's also a priest. He is a king priest, just like somebody else in the Old Testament, Melchizedek. According to Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And so Jesus Jesus is not patterned after the Levitical priests, but he's patterned in a sense after Melchizedek in that he is a priest king, which makes him automatically greater than the Levitical high priest. They're just priests. Jesus is a priest king. He's the Messiah, son of David, and high priest all rolled into one magnificent person. And Jesus didn't seek this for himself. Isn't that tremendous? Think about the humility of Christ. This this very issue is something of a weakness with our own democratic system of elections. I'm not anti-democracy. I'm not anti-elections. But but think about this. The characteristics that, that lead a person to run for public office tend to be the exact characteristics that make those people ill-suited to do what's best for others. Just think about the presidency of the United States. It's the most powerful position in the most powerful nation on earth. And to run for that office, you have to believe that of the 330 million plus people who call themselves Americans, you are the best to lead all of them. It seems to me, and perhaps this is a cynical way of looking at this, I don't think it is, but maybe it is, seems to me that that requires either a pathological thirst for power or a massive presumption of superiority to everyone around you. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He he did not seek this office. There's no ambition in Him. God the Father appointed Him, and therefore Christ's taking the office of priest represented His loving submission to authority. Jesus accepted authority as loving submission to the authority that was above Him. There was selflessness in Christ's becoming the high priest king. And so there's no surprise here. There's selflessness in His execution of the office. We have a king priest serving us. It's amazing. Now, the author is is now going to move on to the offering and perfection of Christ the high priest. He talked about the the offering and weakness or the weakness and offering of the Levitical priests earlier. Now he's going to talk about Christ's offering and perfection. So look look at chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh. So stop right there and let's think back to to, to verse 1. Jesus is a man. Remember, the author said, every priest taken from man, well, Jesus is a man because there's that requirement that a representative for God must be like those he's representing. He must be a man. Jesus is a man. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up. Now, now this is where we, we come upon something that we would not expect. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. We, we might expect, given what the author does later, and, and, and most of us likely have read the book of Hebrews, 
We might expect, given what the author does later, to, to mention Jesus' sacrifice of Himself right here. Because, because He does that later in Hebrews. He, he points to the sacrifices of the Levitical high priests, animals, bulls, sheep, goats. But Jesus offers Himself. Now, He's not discounting that, that right here. But He does something different. He says that the, the Lord offered prayers and supplications. The, the word offer here... As it, as it pertains to Jesus, it's the same word that was used in verses 1 and 3 of the, of the Levitical priests. So, parallel then with the, the Levitical priests' offering of gifts and sacrifices is Jesus' offering of prayers and supplications. This, this is where I, I adjure you before the living God. Pay close attention because this is important. It's important that Jesus prayed, that He made offerings of prayer and supplication. And the context makes clear that these are prayers for Himself. Later, later the author talks about Him praying for us. He ever lives to, lives to intercede for us. Here He's talking about prayers for Himself, prayers for deliverance from death, because He prayed to the One who was able to save Him from death. The author mentions loud cries and tears indicating it's the anguish that Jesus suffered in His incarnation. And our, our minds likely just run to Gethsemane. But I would encourage you to consider that this reference to Jesus praying to the One who is able to save Him from death with, with loud cries and tears, I, I would encourage you to think about as, that as something more than Gethsemane. It would include Gethsemane, but, but that reference shouldn't be limited to that. The Gospels record Jesus regularly spending time in prayer. Far more time in prayer than any of us do. Jesus would pray all night. What's He praying about? I think we get a a healthy clue in the fact that Jesus is constantly predicting His own suffering and death. He does it over and over and over. Just in Mark, He does it three times. He does it in chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is what's going to happen to me. And when Peter objects, what does the Lord do? Get behind me, Satan. This is going down. Now that's Jesus' conviction. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. It's happening. So what might he be praying about all night? He's he's praying to the one who might deliver him from death. The high priestly prayer of John 17 indicates the same thing. Gives us a glimpse at the sense in which Jesus prayed to the one who was able to deliver him from death. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And what that indicates is that Jesus is praying to be raised from the dead that He might re-enter the Father's presence. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That's all about Jesus getting back to glory, which requires Him to be raised from the dead. The Psalms also give us a glimpse at how Jesus prayed for deliverance from death. You might say, Psalms? Well, Psalms are Old Testament. Jesus Jesus wasn't born until the New Testament. That's why it's the New Testament. How's Jesus praying in the Psalms? I would suggest to you that the Psalms were understood by Jesus Himself as, here's a big word, typologically, typologically forecasting His own life and death. Typology is a phenomenon where because of the sovereignty of God, His control of all things, He uses earlier events, places, people, etc. 
to foreshadow later and greater events, places, people, etc., all of which then culminate ultimately in the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Christ. All right? So in the Psalms, for example, David writes of his own experience. But by God's sovereign hand, he has moved David to write in ways that foreshadow Christ's experience. And that is why Jesus is able to pray on the cross in the first person, Psalm 22, which are words of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this this same reality or phenomenon of typology is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 reads Psalm 40, a psalm of David, as a reference to Christ's experience. He says this is Christ saying this. This is the Father speaking to Christ. And listen to how Psalm 40 begins. So, So we know that Psalm 40 is in the view of this inspired author. This is, a, this is typological of Jesus. Listen to how Psalm 40 begins. I waited patiently for the Lord. That means I trusted the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I would suggest to you that as as Jesus read Psalm 40, obviously he knew that was David's experience, but he knew also that this was going to be his experience. And just as we're encouraged to pray the promises of Scripture, so he prayed these things to the Father. Father, make this true of me. Draw me up out of the pit of destruction. We could add to Psalm 40, Psalm 7, 28, 30, 42, 88, 143, we could, add, we, could, we could throw in the poetic section of Jonah 2 where Jonah quotes psalms about his own, his, his own face-to-face experience with death and his being saved from it. And what does Jesus say about that? Jesus says, that's how you know I'm going to be three days and three nights in the grave. All of these things, I think, are indicative that, that, that Jesus saw these Old Testament passages as forecasting his own experience And so he prayed these, not to avoid the cross, but to be delivered out of death in the resurrection. Now look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son. What, 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 What does that matter? We've, we've talked about this a bit in, in, in recent weeks. Sonship has privileges. There, there are things that you're going to do for a son that you're not going to do for a, a, a servant. And, and the author of Hebrews notes this. Paul uses this same truth to communicate an idea in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Although he was a son, meaning although. Jesus got no easy special treatment, so to speak. But he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, when we read about Jesus learning anything or, or learning obedience, we, we can be a little bit troubled because we might think, well, is he saying that Jesus became obedient, having been formerly disobedient? No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. This, this is very similar to Jesus becoming a merciful and, and faithful high priest without that implying that one time he was, he was a meanie and unfaithful. No, that's not what's being communicated. Rather, he learned by the experience of human life how to 
put one foot in front of the other in obedience on behalf of the people that he's representing. In particular, Jesus learned how to obey in the midst of suffering. You know this as well as I do. When we're in trouble, we are tempted to do whatever it takes to get out of that trouble, to make ourselves feel better, to find a way around it. Frequently, that impulse drives us to disobey the law of God. I'm going to do something that God forbids in order to make myself feel better. I'm going to do something that God forbids in order to get around this trouble. I'm going to refuse to do something that God tells me positively to do in order to, to find a way through this thing. That, that's, what, that's what we're tempted to do. But Jesus, the eternal Son, putting on human flesh and facing all the trials and temptations of man, He added a layer of difficulty to His former life of obedience with the Father. Think through this. The eternal Son, this is prior to the incarnation, the eternal Son, due to His perfect nature, He submitted to the will of God in eternity past as naturally as as a fish gliding through water. But just that act of putting on human flesh, being surrounded by sin, which is foreign to Him, being surrounded by sin, surrounded by sinners celebrating sin, that added a layer of difficulty to His former experience of obedience. And so Christ learned obedience in the sense that He worked at it under the conditions of human suffering, human temptation and pressure. It was in that cauldron that he, that he practiced trusting God as a man. And that learning of obedience through suffering, where did he get the fuel for that? What enabled him to do that? Well, it was his prayers and supplications to the one who was able to save him from death. Jesus successfully navigated his entire incarnation via prayers answered. Now let's look again at how Jesus is contrasted with the Levitical priests. What did Jesus offer? Jesus offered prayers and supplications, enabling Him to obey perfectly. That's Jesus. His prayers and supplications enabled Him to to obey perfectly, whereas the Levitical priests' disobedience required their offerings for their own weakness. Their disobedience required a certain kind of offering, an offering for themselves. And, and, and even if the, the, the author of Hebrews, he was just kind of putting a menu in front of us and, and saying to us, yeah, you got the Levitical priest, you could go with them, or, or Jesus, he's better. Even if it was like a menu, and we could actually choose between one and the other. What he's showing here is that there's no competition. I mean, which, which one is actually able to reconcile you to God and help you endure the difficulties of this life. It's clearly Jesus. Even if you could go back to the Levitical priests, you'd be a fool to do so. Levitical priests, they could deal gently with human beings. Jesus could do all the more. He experienced the anguish of humanity, but He did it without failure because He trusted in God, and therefore He is able to help us do the same. Now finally, The author wants to address the the perfection and office of Christ the high priest. So having dealt with the office and weakness of the Levitical priest, now he he puts in front of us the perfection and office of Christ in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 with me. 
and being made perfect, he, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus being made perfect, just like his, his learning obedience, does not mean that at one time Jesus was imperfect and then he became perfect. Rather, this is closely related to his learning obedience. By his learning obedience, that is, gaining experience as an obedient human being, Jesus proved himself perfect. Jesus learned what it meant to please God at every stage of life. Now think of this. All, we're all in different age brackets here, different places in life. Jesus learned how to please God as a child. He learned how to please God as a child. Jesus learned how to please God as a teenager. He learned how to, how to please God as, as, as a very young adult. He learned how to please God as a mature adult. He learned how to obey God at every stage of life. Tom Schreiner says it this way. This is a great quote. He says, his perfection, Jesus' perfection, it was an abstraction. An abstraction until he obeyed God in the concrete realities of everyday human experience. His sufferings and death equipped and qualified him to serve as a high priest. All of that stuff that Jesus suffered in his, in, in, in his grueling work at, at being obedient to the Father, trusting the Father whom he prayed to to help him with this, that is what qualified him to be our high priest. That's what, that's what led to the Father putting a stamp on him says, perfect high priest. Now, you can serve as spotless lamb for everyone else. It's not like the Levitical priest. Jesus was proven perfect, flawless, perfectly obedient. And so he became a priest. Listen to this. This is really important because of the way that he words this. So, so Jesus became the priest who is himself the source of eternal salvation. And that's why in this passage, he does not, he does not put the, the sacrifice of Jesus' flesh next to the, the sacrifice of of the Levitical high priests, that, that sacrifice of itself by itself, but he first talks about his offering prayers and supplications so that he can be this, this sacrifice for us. This is what entitled him, made him able to, say, to give himself over as, as the perfect sacrifice. The Levitical priests, they offered sacrifices because of their own sinfulness. Conversely, Jesus offered prayers and supplications unto the proving of Himself perfect so that He could be the sacrifice. This is why Jesus, He, he, he just couldn't be a Levitical priest. He, he could not be like them, giving in to sin and weakness. No, Jesus had to be sinless that He Himself might become the source of eternal salvation. Jesus, Jesus came not, not to offer the blood of animals, but His own blood. Had He sinned, had He sinned even once, He could not serve as that sacrifice because a sacrifice has to be without blemish. And again, that's why He offered prayers and supplications, turning to the Father in faith to see Him through the onslaught of suffering and temptation so that He would come through unscathed and Himself be a sacrifice for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross... He did so as a spotless sacrifice for our sins. As depicted in the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the sins of God's people were imputed to Christ. 
They were, they were charged to his account. Though he had never earned any guilt himself by sinning, he's taking all the guilt of all his people for all their sins of all time on himself. And for that reason, God poured out his wrath on the Son for the sins of others. But because of Christ's offering of prayers to the one who was able to save him from death, not only was he enabled to obey on the way to the cross, but on the basis of those faithful prayers, God raised his faithful servant from the dead. And having been raised from the dead, then, he is the key to life for all those who follow him. Now, why would the author say that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him? He's the eternal source of salvation for all who obey him. Well, we know what it can't mean because we were able to interpret Scripture with Scripture. It can't be that people earn their salvation through obedience because the whole point is that Jesus is the source of their salvation. We, we, we need atonement because of our fallenness. Because we, we had, every one of us, racked up to the heavens disobedient offenses against God. Those who truly trust in Christ, this is the key, those who truly trust in Christ obey Him. That's why he says this here. Those who trust, obey Him. In fact, since you can't see faith, you can't see somebody trusting, how do you tell somebody trusts Christ? They obey. And then that's all he's getting at here. He'll show that obedience comes from faith in chapter 11. At this point, he's assuming it without, without giving any explanation. But that's part of the author's theology. People who believe, obey. And so, he can say... Those who believe and those who obey, two different labels. And he, he applies those labels to the same group of people because they are the same group of people. Those who believe, obey. And so he can refer to them anyway, either way. At any rate, all of this means that Jesus is a completely different kind of priest. He's, he's similar in one way, but all of these other ways, he, he's, he's different. He, he's not like the order of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. He is by necessity, ministry, and likeness a priest of a completely different order, that of Melchizedek. The author will have more to say about Melchizedek in coming chapters. Now, you may have noticed that your sermon notes are in the form of a chiasm. That's because the passage is a chiasm. The passage is a chiasm. And for, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in a chiasm, the, the first little snippet or chunk or chapter of, of, of a passage is, is about the same thing or corresponds to the last component in the passage. So the first corresponds to the last, then the second corresponds to the second to the last, the third uh, corresponds to the third to the last, and usually there's something in the middle. And typically what's in the middle is is highlighted. So let's, let's think about what's in the middle of this chiasm, the high point of the passage. The high point of the passage is in verses 4 and 5. Just as the Levitical high priest did not seek office for himself, so also Jesus did not seek his priesthood. Rather, he was appointed by God. He was appointed by God. Now think about why that might be a significant point. The, these are people 
the, the, the original recipients of this letter, were people who were attempted, who were tempted to follow God, but not Jesus. They, they, they wanted to continue to be worshipers of God, but through the old covenant system. So it is significant that, that he is saying here, God, the God that, that, that we all want to worship, and that you're tempted to worship falsely, that God has appointed Jesus high priest. And why would he do that? Why would God appoint Jesus high priest? Just as a, as a way of reviewing these things. He only ever appointed other priests in order to show our need for Jesus. Those, those earlier Levitical priests, they were, they, they were designed like my miter saw. The Levitical priesthood shows you need a priest, but you need one better than these. That is their whole function. And God delights to give His people the best gifts, and so He has appointed Jesus as the high priest who is able to reconcile us to the Father and thereby facilitate our fellowship with the Father unto our endurance to the end. Why should we hold fast our confession? Going back to chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, looking forward to chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, why should we hold fast our confession in Christ? Because our high priest is better than the former priesthood. He is appointed by God now. He's a Melchizedekian priest. He lives forever. He is Himself the source of eternal salvation for those who obey Him. So as we, as we close here and as we, as, we, as we begin to prepare our hearts for a moment of reflection after I pray, as, as, we, as we begin to prepare our minds and hearts for that, just, just begin to think about this question. To what functional priest or priests are you tempted to cling in your thinking, in your affections, in your living? To, to, to what are you looking to, to make everything right? Consider that question as, as we pray and take a moment of reflection. To the extent that you look to other things, to the extent that you continue looking to other things, to lesser priests, you will only find those priests to demonstrate their own sufficiency and your need for Christ. So hold fast to Him. Let's pray. Father, we began this time by asking for the help of Your Holy Spirit and we ask for more of His help even now. And in particular, we ask that He would convince us of the truth of the things that we've heard and that further as we, as we observe a moment of silent reflection in the coming moments, that He would speak to each one of us in our consciences, revealing to us what, if any, functional high priests we're looking to, to, to make all things right for us. Would your Holy Spirit help us in that way, revealing these things to us, and then convincing us of the truth that all of those things need to be put in their rightful place, and Christ elevated to the position of our great high priest, who is himself the source of our salvation. And Father, would you please... Grant that your Holy Spirit would help us not just to identify these things, but then to address them as we leave this place. To live in light of the truth in the coming days. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.